Well, I hope that you had a wonderful Thanksgiving, that it was sweet. Uh, maybe you weren't here uh, for our Thanksgiving Eve service, but I especially needed that time to reflect on Psalm 100 and to enjoy God and remember that we have we have reasons to be thankful all the time, and those reasons are not thank those reasons are not rooted ultimately in our feelings, but in the finished work of Jesus Christ, who God is, who He has made us by His grace, and and we were able to do that once. I hope you had a great Thanksgiving with your family, um, and by great I mean you were able to give thanks to God. I think that that's a successful, wonderful Thanksgiving. Um, now, like many, we as a church are shifting our focus to Christmas. Some of you have already done that. I've kind of taken some, something like a break from Facebook, uh, but I went on there recently and I saw that even before Thanksgiving, many of you in this church were already setting up the tree and putting on the lights. Well, we as a church are doing something similar today. We're shifting our eyes to Christmas. And to do that, uh, we want to, to, to better do that, we want to recommend to you a little devotional book um, not very big, you can see, uh, and it's called The Dawning of Indestructible Joy. It's written by John Piper. We made these available last Christmas, and I think, or around Advent, and I think the Christmas before we might have even used it too. Um, if you'd like, you can download it for free from desiringgod.org. It is what the, the call to worship was uh, that was read to you before the service, uh, before we began to sing. But if you're like me and you like to hold a book, you like to turn the pages, even if you've got to pay for it, uh, there are a limited number of these books available at the book uh, table in the commons, and we ask that you give a donation of $7, a suggested donation. Um, it's a dollar less than what it says in the back of the book. We're not trying to make money. We, we want this in your hands. If you've got $5 and you want to give that, that's fine too, um, but please pick up this book. Here's the thing. As a church, we don't want to coast our way to December 25th. We want to worship our way to Christmas. We want our hearts to be tuned to the gospel and the great gift that God has given to us that we celebrate every Christmas. And so this is one way that you can, as a family or as a single, better do that. Tune your hearts with God's help to enjoy Christmas rightly. Um, so I'll stop talking about that and encourage you to turn to Mark 2 because we're going to be reading from Mark 2. If you don't have a Bible, there are pew Bibles below the seats in front of you, and I encourage you to pick up one of those and turn to page 837 in the pew Bible, Mark 2, verses 18 through 22. This is what God's Word says. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of untrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins, but the new wine is for fresh wineskins. This is the word of the Lord. Let's go to him again in prayer. God, your word is true, whether we feel like it or not. 
You have given us your words so that we would know Christ, so that we would be able to rest our wandering hearts in Jesus. This morning, in light of this passage, we ask that you would give us clarity of thought, that you would help us to not just simply understand the passage in our minds, but that you would do what only you can do, and you would take the, your word and bring it down to our hearts. You would apply it to our lives so that those who are struggling this morning, whether it be with doubt, with, with a, a suffering, a struggle, a physical ailment, Lord, that they would rest their hearts in Christ. And Father, I pray that those who have come into this place, into this sanctuary, Father, unwillingly, that you would, by your grace, for your glory and their great good, overcome their hard hearts. Lord, hard hearts don't know what they need, but what they ultimately need is Jesus. And so I pray that for the believer and the non-believer here this morning, you would give us both what we need, and that is more of your Son more understanding of his gospel, more understanding of what was accomplished at the cross, and that you would cause in us a great desire to fellowship, to commune with you, and that we would commune with you today. Father, these are big prayers, but you can do them, for you are God, and you are good, and you answer your people's prayer because of the cross. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, many of the Jewish religious leaders who heard Jesus preach found it extremely difficult to reconcile what Jesus taught about God, the kingdom of God, and about salvation with what they had been taught and what they had now been teaching to others. In the end, those who remained committed to their religion and traditions rejected Jesus because they could not harmonize what Jesus taught with what they believed to be true and their traditions. They tried to fit Jesus into their Judaism, and this struggle was not just a struggle for the Jewish leaders in first century Israel. It has been and remains an issue for people of all different backgrounds, of all different worldviews throughout all centuries, including the 21st century. So the issue that Jesus is dealing with, the, the problem that he's confronting, the question that is being asked is very much applicable to us today. Whatever worldview, whatever religion you come from, even if you grew up in the church, this passage has something to say to you and can be applied to your life. See, people are still trying to do the very same thing, although most often, especially in the West, in a different way, uh, they're trying to do the very same thing that the Pharisees and those who asked this question were trying to do then. They're trying to combine the gospel of Jesus Christ with their own beliefs about God and salvation. They hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, the glorious gospel that God the Father sent his one eternal son, Jesus, who was and is God to the earth. That Jesus, in obedience to his father, though he was and remained and still is God, he truly became a man, lived a sinless life, then died for sinners at the cross, giving his life as a ransom payment for sin. And then that three days later, after his death, he was truly dead. The father raised him from the grave victoriously as a sign, as proof, as a guarantee that all who trust in Jesus Christ would not only be forgiven of their sins, not only have eternal life in some spiritual, soul-like form, dancing in the clouds with the angels playing harps, but that they would have a bodily resurrection. That God in Christ was going to make all things new, including our bodies. They hear this gospel and then they wonder, 
like they did then, how this gospel fits within their own lives. And this is the confrontation of the gospel still today with, with believers and non-believers. And the answer is the same answer that Jesus gives in this passage of how he fits with current worldviews and approaches to God. Today's passage gives us the answer in a very interesting way. That is, by comparing the eating habits of Jesus' disciples with the disciples of two other groups. I think here is this reminder for us that in some way, shape, or form, God can use anything to point us to Jesus, to point us to the gospel, to, to help us understand more of what it is that Jesus accomplished and who Jesus is. I, I as a parent, am often trying to just pick up every common day things, situations that happen in our household, times when I sin, and there are many of them in my household, uh, and, and connect them to the gospel. And here, I think there's evidence that this is a biblical approach to Christian living because Jesus finds within their question a way to connect their understanding to who he is and what he has done and what he's going to do. The first group were the disciples of John the Baptist that, that, that are addressed in, in their question. John's disciples were likely fasting in expectation of the long-promised Messiah who John the Baptist had announced to them would be coming and now we know has ultimately come and that Messiah is Jesus Christ. John and his disciples were only a, a temporary movement. They're going to be absorbed and they're going to willingly come into the followers of Jesus Christ. And so the main focus this morning and ultimately in this passage is not on John's disciples but the other group of disciples that are mentioned in the passage. And that group of disciples were those who followed the Pharisees. We know a lot of things about the Pharisees. If you've read the Bible, you see their name popping up, this, this sect of Jews popping up often. They were those who most frequently and most open, openly and often opposed Jesus' teaching because from the very beginning, the Pharisees, the Pharisees realized this fact, that Jesus had something very different to say about God, about salvation and the kingdom of God than what they were saying. Now, they had, they had a lot of agreement on certain essentials, you might call them, the resurrection of the dead, the fact that God is sovereign and yet humans are responsible. They agreed on that. They, they had a, a similar view on sin and yet they saw in Jesus' teaching, they heard in Jesus' teaching a very different understanding of other things related to their teaching and their traditions. And so there were confrontations throughout Jesus' ministry between Jesus and the Pharisees. Now, in already going through Mark's gospel, we've only made our way through chapter 2. We're going to turn the page to chapter 3 tomorrow. Jesus has had two confrontations. We're only in chapter 2. Mark's gospel, remember, is the condensed version. He, he's like the guy who just gives you the, the need to know, not all the details. And he's already told us about two confrontations between Jesus and the Pharisees. Now, if you remember, the first confrontation occurred after Jesus pronounced the sins of a paralytic man to be forgiven. The confrontation was over this. The Pharisees saw that as blasphemous. For someone to say that, that their sins were forgiven to another person was something that only God could do. And so if Jesus is not God, well then they would be right in their calling of Jesus to be blasphemy, God. He was taking the Lord's name in vain. But the problem was and is that Jesus is God and they didn't miss it, they didn't see that. And even in that scene, even in Jesus healing the, the paralytic man, 
he gives proof to the Pharisees and all that were there that he truly has divine authority. It's this little, I don't even think it's that little, it's really a big proof that he is who he is saying he is to be because not only does he pronounce the man's sins to be forgiven, but he tells the man to get up and walk and he picks up his bed and he walks out. I mean, what more evidence do you need to say that this man's unique? He has divine authority, but again, they didn't see it. The second confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees happened after Jesus called Levi, the tax collector, to be one of his disciples. Remember, the Pharisees viewed the tax collectors as the scum of the earth. They were traitors to God and to God's people, to their own families. They'd sold everything so they could get wealthy. They'd turn their backs on God's people. And the Pharisees believed that all they deserved was God's wrath. They were a people to be shunned, a people that were unclean, and now Jesus had just called Levi, who is, who is also known as Matthew, who writes later on the, Ma- the, the gospel of Matthew, to be one of his disciples. And the Pharisees saw that as appalling. And so there's another confrontation here between the Pharisees' teaching about God, about the kingdom of God and salvation, and Jesus' teaching. Not only that, but after he calls Levi, well, then he celebrates Levi's conversion with a bunch of other former tax collectors and sinners. They gather and they celebrate in this big feast. And, and this is the context, this is the, the immediate context of this question about fasting. See, it turns out that Monday and Thursdays were typically fast days for John's disciples and for the Pharisees. And some group of people, likely having passed by the house and knowing and hearing the stories about Jesus, witnesses this big celebration, this big feast on what, what was one of the, the fasting days for the Pharisees, and they find it confusing. It didn't make sense to them. Uh, after all, the religious people that they knew were fasting on that day, and here's Jesus who has claimed to speak for God, claimed to be a very holy man, and he's not fasting, and nor are his disciples. So what is going on? I think the, the thing that was probably going on in their minds would, would be something similar to this. Um, say you tell your children that they need to start eating healthier, that, that they need to stop eating as, as much sugar, and then immediately after that, you go to your freezer, maybe you and if you're married, you and your spouse, and you get out a gallon of ice cream, and you scoop that out, their favorite kind, mint chocolate chip or, or cookies and cream, and, you, and you, you just have this overflowing bowl of ice cream, and right in front of your children, you and your spouse just mow that thing down right in front of them. After just telling them that they need to, to, to eat healthier, that you're more concerned about their diet. And not only that, but then you go to the couch, and, and you and your spouse sit down with three bags of chip, you just rip them open, you don't even care that it's all over the place, and you're just shoving them into your mouths. And that's, that's what was something similar to what was going on in the minds of these people who had, who had seen Jesus and his disciples not fasting on what was traditionally now a fasting day. They saw it as inconsistent. I mean, if they were holy, they would be fasting. And so, either out of confusion or maybe even anger, they approached Jesus and asked him in Mark 2.18 this question. Why do John's disciples and the Pharisees' disciples fast, but your disciples do not fast. Basically, their question was, Jesus, if you're holy and committed to God as much as these other teachers and their disciples are, well then, wouldn't you make your followers fast? 
Well, it's not that Jesus was opposed to fasting. If you remember in his temptation, the 40 days where he faced down the best that Satan could throw at him, he fasted and Satan tempted him with food. He said, turn the the stones into bread and eat it. You can do it. You're the son of God. Just do it. And he turned that away. So it's not that Jesus was opposed to fasting. And Jesus would also tell his followers how to fast in Matthew 6. Even correcting the, the false fasting, the, the fasting that the Pharisees, maybe had, they had started with fasting for the right reasons, but in, in Matthew 6, it seems that many of those who, who view themselves as religious, including the Pharisees, had turned fasting into a means of, of proving their, their religiosity to, to the, those outside of them, the, the world outside of them. So, so many of men, and I used to be one of them, like to prove how manly they are by how much they can eat. Sit down, get a bunch of guys together, throw a bunch of meat on the table, and who can eat the most meat? They're, they're, there's this kind of natural, it may be or may not be part of the fall, I don't know, but, but this, this tendency to compete and to, and to prove how manly you are by how much food you can eat. Uh, maybe some women do that too when they get together. I've never seen that, never heard that, uh, but, but us men uh, are, are sometimes prone to do that. Well, it seems like at this time, and it's even true today, some people try to prove how holy they are by how much food they don't eat. And the Pharisees had turned fasting into that. But Jesus in Matthew 6 doesn't say, don't fast. He says, when you fast, don't make it this public spectacle. Put oil on your head, make it look like you're healthy. So, so everybody's not like, what's wrong with you? Oh, I'm fasting because I'm really religious. Jesus is dealing with the wrong type of fasting, not commanding his followers not to fast. He's going to teach them the heart of fasting. But his answer to this group of people who were questioning why his followers were not fasting is interesting, and it gets at what I believe is the main point of this passage, and we're going to see it in multiple ways. In Jesus' answer as to why his disciples are not fasting like the disciples of the other groups, we will see that Jesus changes everything. Jesus, that's the title of the sermon. That's the main point. I'm going to try and hit that point from different angles this morning because that's what this passage is about. Jesus is saying, I have come and in my coming, I have changed everything. Jesus' answer to their question consists of two parts. And it comes within the context of three short, meaty, wonderful parables. And the first parable involves the bridegroom and his wedding guests. Look at verse 19 and 20. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Jesus tells these inquiring minds that with him being present, he's the bridegroom, and his disciples are the the guests of the bridegroom. They're the the wedding guests. It's not time to fast. It it would be ridiculous for them to fast. It would be like going to a wedding feast. Now, in in this time, in in the Jewish culture, a a wedding was a seven-day celebration. If this was the the first wedding for the couple, it was the seven days of of feasting, of celebrating. Uh, Even the religious teachers would would pause from their discipling of, of of their students, and they would, all those who were invited would come for seven days. I mean, you think about how expensive weddings are today, at least if you have a big wedding, you rent the hall. Can, can you imagine seven days, all the people invited and eating, and not just kind of, but a lot of food, and rejoicing in this, this 
this coming together of, of two people into one life. It was huge. And to fast at the wedding feast would have been inappropriate, offensive, and out of the question because the bridegroom's presence meant that it was time to celebrate. It was time to party. Not a time to mourn, to be sorrowful or sad. Now, I want to go back again to Thanksgiving. I I want you, no matter what age you are, even if you're 10, because I think if you're 10, this will be extra fun to imagine. I want you to imagine hosting Thanksgiving at your house. Uh, I'm in the category where I still go to my parents and my in-laws' place, and they make the food, and sometimes we bring something. It's, It's a really nice category to be in. Um, I'm enjoying it. I'm, I'm truly enjoying it and praising God for it. Uh, but, but imagine hosting Thanksgiving, even if you're 10. Making the turkey, the stuffing, taking the time to open the can of cranberry stuff, the sauce, right? And, and dumping that can in the bowl and then trying to mix it up to look like it's not some jello-like thing that's been sitting in there for seven years, right? That taking all this time making the pies, the apple, and the pumpkin. And then, when all of your family and all of your friends, these these guests that you have invited to come over to your house, sit down at the table, and you're ready to dig into this glorious feast that that you have prepared for them, and and, and a means of, of serving, showing hospitality. Christians are called to show hospitality. You've fully devoted yourself to that that passage, that that calling of, of the Christian. And then after you pray and give God thanks and you're ready to dig in, everybody says, I'm, we're not going to eat it. We've decided today to fast. How would you feel? You'd be offended. You'd say, today's Thanksgiving. It's not the day to fast. This is the day to feast, to celebrate all of God's blessings. And Jesus' disciples fasting at this point would be something like your family coming to your house after you had prepared a feast and instead of feasting, deciding to fast on Thanksgiving. So the first part of Jesus' answer to those wondering why his disciples are not fasting is that it's not time for his followers to fast. Of course Christians should be holy and though there is a time for sorrow and for fasting, well, the defining trait of the Christian life is, is not sorrow it's not the discipline of fasting. That's, that's not a bad thing. It can be used in its place. But we see in the fruits of the Spirit that one of the fruits of the Spirit is joy. Overwhelming joy that a Christian cannot contain because of the gospel. Because we in Jesus have joy. A joy that surpasses any and all other joys. So though there is a time to mourn, as Christians, when difficult things happen, we don't just put on our happy face and pretend like it's fine, read a couple Hallmark cards and go on with life. No. We mourn. We grieve over the loss, whether it be death of a loved one or our own suffering or struggles with sin. And maybe we fast to commune with God and to focus our attention more because as those hunger pains come, we, we, we're drawn more to prayer. They, they remind us, pray, you need the Lord. As you fight sin, you, you, you might fast and use that as a means to, to, to battle against your sin and, and to ask God for your sanctification, to, to be quicker. But at this point, God was very near to his people In Jesus, he was with them, so it wasn't time to fast. So that's the first part of the answer that Jesus gives. It's not time to fast. It's like Thanksgiving. There's a wedding feast going on. I'm here. We're going to celebrate. It's time to celebrate. That's the first answer. 
After the bridegroom and wedding guest parable, Jesus gives two more parables, both of which are getting at the very same truth in different ways. Now, as short as they are, they're a sentence or two, they help us to understand how Jesus changes everything. From them, we can see that in the coming of Jesus the Messiah, Judaism, and ultimately every other worldview and religion, even, even if you, you profess faith in Christ, but you're, you're truly just resting in your works, every single one of them must give way. They must be set aside for Christianity, true biblical Christianity. For in Jesus, the old covenant finds its fulfillment and completion. In them, Jesus says that he came to make things new, not to keep things as they are, not to keep the status quo. God is doing something new in Christ, new. And these people, these these religious leaders, were trying to, to, to keep Jesus in their own continued life. As they were, were going, it was like they were living their life and, and grabbing things. And this is so much like how we do this today in our culture. And some of us Christians do this, just pieces. Grab a little truth of, that you like about Jesus and add it to your life as you go on. But the problem is that that means that you're in control. That you're God. That you are over the scriptures. That, that Jesus is just an add-on. And that's what the Pharisees were trying to do. They were trying to add Jesus' teachings. And ultimately, they couldn't. They didn't fit with their teachings. And so they set him aside. And so this morning, some of you are simply going on your own track, living life to the fullest without Christ, adding on a little feel-good, a little, little I call it Christ, Hallmark Christianity, little nuggets of something that kind of keeps you going. Oh, there's so much more. And Jesus didn't come to give you little hallmark nuggets. He came to give you so much more. He, he is doing something new. God is doing something new. And we see this in this first parable and in the second, in the second group. Mark 2, 21. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. In this parable, we learn that attempting to combine Jesus and the gospel with Judaism or any other religion or worldview is like trying to patch a hole in an old garment with a new unshrunk piece of cloth. And it simply works like this. I mean, you don't have to be all into clothes and design to to know how this works. A new patch that gets put on an old garment and an old uh, piece of clothing that's been washed and dried and washed and dried, after it's on there, if it's a new patch, when that patch gets wet and then it dries again, it's going to shrink and it's going to pull away from that garment. Ultimately, it's going to cause a greater, a greater tear in that garment. So, you, so you, somebody tried to, to put this on there to fix an old garment, but it ended up making it worse. And Jesus is saying, and we're going to look at this more, that that's what people who try to put Jesus onto their existing structures and lives are doing. You can't do it. It's going to make things worse. Jesus and his gospel is the new patch. And Judaism, and ultimately any other religion or worldview that is not biblical Christianity, is the old garment. With the coming of Jesus, everything is new. The old was not bad in Judaism, but it serves its purpose now, and it's no longer usable. It has been replaced by something better. And to continue to try to keep it is pointless because the real thing has arrived. All of the old covenant, all the, the stories, whether it's David and Goliath, all the kings, everything was pointing to this new thing that God would do. And some people were trying to go back to the old. God was doing something better that he had promised long ago, and they were trying to hold on. And it makes sense, and I get this. 
I, I had to wrestle with the implications of the gospel as well, and every single person ultimately does, even if they don't remember wrestling with it. At some point, even if God saves them when they're three, their little minds had to say, okay, Legos and baseball and football and soccer and dresses and whatever are not where hope is found. Jesus is my hope. And they trusted in Jesus. Even in that little mind, they had to, there, was a, there was a conflict of worldview. I am the center of the world. You don't have to be three to think that. That's the battle in every one of our, our hearts. I'm the center. And then the gospel comes in and says, no, Jesus is center. And that's what they were trying. They were trying to, to put these things together, hold it. I mean, their foundation was being ripped away from them. And they were trying to put it back in. But God had a better foundation that he was going to put in there for all who believe in Jesus. There's, there's something that I think helps to kind of capture this changing, this, this thing that God was doing. Now, an event occurred on June 13, 2009 that has forever changed the way that people watch TV. That's the date that over-the-air broadcasts switched from analog to digital. Many of us have been blessed by this change. Uh, Congress got involved. I don't know if you knew this, but, but Congress set June 12, 2009 as the deadline for the full-power television stations to stop broadcasting analog signals and then on June 13, 2009, they made it the law that all full-power television stations in America were now required to broadcast exclusively in digital format. Maybe you don't know what this means. It means high def. It means going from the grainy pictures where some of us had to get up if we didn't have our contacts or glasses on and, and get really close to see if it was a fumble on the game, to, to see the details of the screen, and going from that to where you can sit in a different room and if you got an angle, I mean, you're, you're seeing things crystal clear. And Congress got involved. I mean, that must say something about our culture, that, that TV is so important that Congress has got, is, is getting involved in, in TV issues. But they got involved, and, and because of that, now when you watch TV, over-the-air TV, I, I don't have cable, some of you have cable, and I'm watching a better picture. I find that funny. Uh, if you don't have HD at cable or, or stations on HD, the, the over-the-air things, this isn't a secret anymore, I hope, it is crystal clear. You're getting HD TV for free. It's wonderful. Um, but, but that change significantly changed the way that, that people watch TV. Now, if you try to use one of those old rabbit ears that, that many of us grew up with, you put it on your TV and you try to get that, that signal, it's not going to work. You're not going to get that HD signal. You couldn't before and it's not going to work now. It served its purpose. It was really nice before HD television, high definition uh, analog went away and digital television came in. It was really nice. The rabbit ears were fine. But now you need the HD antenna. You set up your, your rabbit ears, it, it's, it's ridiculous. It's pointless because you're not going to get the signal. A better signal has come. And you can pick that up for free if you have the right antenna. Now if you go back to the rabbit ears, it's foolish. It's pointless. And that's what people were doing. It's, it's like they were trying to go back to something old when something new had now come. And not only is it pointless to do that when it comes to Jesus, it's not just that. To try to use the old covenant is like turning to an idol, a false religion that cannot save you and will in the end lead you to destruction. That's what was going on. Jesus was saying, no, the, the greater covenant is coming. I am that covenant. It has now come. Turn away from that and turn to me. This brings us to the last parable in verse 22. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. 
If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. In the ancient world, uh, they used goat skins to store their wine. I know that for many of us, especially if we like goats, maybe we have a pet goat at home, this would be like crazy. How could you skin a goat and, and use its skins to put your wine in and then drink that wine? I mean, that's kind of wild to wrap our minds around. But they didn't have the same technology, and so this is how they did it. And so they would put the wine in these wineskins. And the reason, there was a purpose. They weren't just weird and creepy. There was a purpose behind it. The, the wineskins were elastic and they had enough strength so that as the wine fermented and produced gases, the, the wineskin could, could expand enough to, to still hold the wine without the, the skin bursting. And so it was the, the perfect tool. And they were transportable. People could carry them with them. And, and when it was ready, they could open the wineskin. It was portable. It was, it was a great deal. It was uh, ancient technology. And, and yet Jesus turns to that, this common day practice of, of, of wineskins and wines, and he says, there's something here that parallels to, to what you need to know about me and how I change everything. If you try to put me, he is, he is the new wine, into an old wineskin that has been stretched out and is no longer strong enough to hold the new wine, it's going to burst. It's, it's going to be messy. You can't do it. And that's what the Pharisees were doing, and that's what people who try to combine Jesus and, with their own worldview are doing. They have this old structure. Judaism was good for, for its purpose, and now something has superseded it. And worldviews and all that stuff, they, they keep us from maybe giving up all hope. But now when you find Jesus, something better has come. When he finds you, and if you try to put him in that, that old structure, that old category, whatever it is, it's not going to work. He won't fit. It's going to burst. He, he doesn't fit. You know what? Ultimately, he doesn't just... People say, I, Jesus is in my heart. I get that. I know the Holy Spirit is in here. He's not going to fit. He, he's got a body. He's real. He's so big, he's the king of kings. And these people were trying to, to fit Jesus in an old structure that wasn't meant to hold him. The expansion of the wine would burst the skins, and the same would happen in people's minds if they tried to put Jesus in an old wine skin, an old structure. Danny Aiken summarizes it well in his commentary, writing this. Jesus cannot be integrated into or contained by pre-existing structures, even Judaism, the Torah, and the synagogue. The question is not whether the Pharisees will add Jesus' teachings to their list of traditions and rituals, but whether they will forsake the shadow of the old covenant, embrace the substance of the new covenant, which is Jesus Christ. Now, thinking again of our Thanksgiving imagery that I've played on a few times already. Jesus is not a piece of the pie that you can put other pieces with. Jesus is the whole feast. Jesus is everything. For those who truly understand the implications of the gospel, nothing else will fit. You can't. There's no nook and cranny to put uh, a different worldview. Universal may will not fit. Jesus is exclusively the only way to God. Plural, pluralism, the, the idea that all truths can fit together. When you truly understand the gospel, it will not fit. It will not fit. To be a disciple is not to incorporate Jesus into your way of life, like sewing on a patch or refilling an old container. But trusting in the gospel of Jesus Christ means setting aside the old ways. You're a new creation. You know what a new creation has? A new heart and a renewing mind. One that the Holy Spirit brings about. It's a miraculous work. 
So things are going to change because Jesus changes everything. Yes, it's gradual. Our sanctification happens over time. As, as we live, we wrestle with sin. God works in our heart. The Spirit draws us to confess sins and see things we didn't and grow in godliness. But Jesus changes lives. Brothers and sisters, how can he not? You're talking about the King of Kings. How can he not change your life? I know, I know we want to make the, the, the gospel as it should be all about God's grace and we don't want to combine works. Totally down with that. Reformation, solas, amen, amen, again. And yet some of us think that it's okay to, to set aside the implications and the realities of, of, of the gospel and that Jesus changes people and we just kind of want to hope people into heaven who, who live exactly like they did before they supposedly met Jesus and prayed a prayer. I'm sorry, but you're deceived. That's not how it works. That's like putting, putting a, a, a new patch on an old garment. That's like putting, putting new wine in old wineskins. That's what we're doing. Jesus changes lives. To think anything lesser is to dishonor the gospel. To say that Jesus didn't have to come. Judaism would have worked. Islam would have worked. No. Nothing would have worked. Only Jesus works. Jesus came not to add to, to maintain, reform, or save the Jewish religion. Jesus came to fulfill the old covenant and to inaugurate a new and better covenant. The covenant that had been prophesied by Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 33. Look at this passage with me. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." A new covenant was promised even in the context of the old covenant. A greater covenant, Jeremiah says to God's people, will be, will be coming. And describing this new covenant and what its coming means for the old covenant, the author of Hebrews writes this in chapter 8. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Even today, there are those people who are trying to, to, to maintain the old covenant alongside the new covenant. I recently had a, a discussion with uh, Henry Matarita. He's an, an evangelist that we as a church support. And he was telling me about, and before this, I hadn't really heard about it, but this idea of a dual covenant where God continues the, the covenant that he made with the, the Jews as, as it stands. And so they're saved outside of Christ. And he also, for the Gentiles, save, saves those who trust in Jesus Christ. As if these two covenants can coexist. And yet scripture is clear. That old covenant set the stage for Jesus and the, the new covenant. Because in Jesus Christ, a new day had dawned in redemptive history. And things would never be the same. Jesus changes everything. His life, his ministry, his atoning death, his glorious resurrection... In them, everything changes. And it changes for the better and for the good. Now, it can be scary. When, when we share the gospel with somebody, I, I think in our hearts we should remember this, that just like for us, the foundation, the carpet that they're standing on is spiritually being 
ripped out from underneath them. And they feel like they're, they're going to fall. They're going to crash. They're, they're going to be destroyed. Yes, God is bringing in a, a greater carpet, a foundation, a rock, the rock of Jesus Christ for them to stand on. But this is the, the real implications. And so when we bring the gospel, we feel that, we can't diminish it. We, we can't make it go away. It's a real, valid, spirit-brought feeling because Jesus, Jesus changes everything. We've got to feel that, and they need to feel it too. There can be no compromise between Judaism or any other worldview and Christianity, between works-based religion and salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. There's no compromise between your old life and the new life that comes in Christ. Believer, I think this passage has an application for you as well in the 21st century. Are you trying to combine your life with the life that you find in Christ? Are you doing that? Is Jesus where you find your life? Is he your joy and your treasure? Or is it ultimately, truly, in the end, in money, in your spouse, in a girl, or in a boy, in your fame, in sports, in your career, whatever it is? Jesus will have none of that. He will have none of that. He changes your life. Remember that. Trust in him this morning. Remember the good news of the new covenant, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The religious leaders who heard Jesus preach found it so difficult to reconcile what Jesus taught about God himself and the kingdom of God because he could not be reconciled with what they taught and what they believed. He could not be reconciled. Jesus Christ did not come to add something. His goal was not to reform, maintain traditions. Jesus came to fulfill and supersede everything else that had ever come before him. He came to bring a greater and final new covenant, which would replace the old. A covenant that was promised then and was inaugurated by Jesus, by his cross work. The gospel of Jesus Christ cannot fit with anything else. Jesus changes everything. Rest in him today. Trust in him. Let's pray. Oh God in heaven, we thank you for this glorious good news that every other foundation, even the ones that were good for a time, have nothing as far as strength and our confidence goes on Jesus, who is our true and great foundation, the foundation that we stand on today as the church. Lord, we pray that you would help us to see the sufficiency, the greatness of this new covenant over everything else. Lord, I pray for the believer that you would show them ways that their heart is resting in, trusting in old things and not in the new things, in the, in the great gifts that they have in the gospel that have been bought for them by Christ, that are their inheritance in Christ by grace through faith. And Father, please, as always, overcome hard hearts. We think we know best. You know best. We think we have things figured out. You have everything figured out, for you made it, you sustain it, and you will redeem it. Lord, we pray that you would be glorified in more and more hearts, that sinners would trust in you, that, that, that your church would be strong in the gospel. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.